the election unfolded against the backdrop of COVID-19 and the mass demonstrations following the murder of George Floyd. And in the end, the voters of the South Bronx overwhelmingly cast their ballot for a new generation of leadership. From NPR and Futuro Media, it's Latino USA. I'm Maria Hinojosa. Today, what a Democratic primary in the Bronx can tell us about progressive politics. Richie Torres recently made history. In a hotly contested race, he took the lead in the Democratic primary to represent New York's 15th Congressional District, which is in the Bronx. And the opportunity to represent the essential workers of this borough, to represent the powerful mothers of this borough, it's the culmination of a dream. Torres is a member of the New York City Council, and now he's poised to become the first openly LGBTQ Afro-Latino member of Congress after going up against a frontrunner who opposed gay marriage. It was a wild race with 12 candidates who fought it out to replace Congressman Jose Serrano, one of the most progressive members of the House. I rise in strong support of this emergency supplemental, which will help Puerto Rico. Serrano has represented the district for 30 years. He announced last year that he would step down after being diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. The race took place in the district right next door to the one where Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez unseated longtime Congress member Joe Crowley in 2018. How are you feeling? Can you put it into words? Nope. Which was a major victory for the left wing of the Democratic Party. With so many candidates, this race in the Bronx sparked intense conversations about what it means to be a progressive Democrat in a district where two-thirds of the residents are Latinx and where almost all are people of color. It's also known as the poorest congressional district in the country and a place where voters overwhelmingly vote for Democrats. Latino USA producer Alisa Escarce has been talking to the candidates in the Bronx, and she joins me now. So, Alisa, you've been covering and following this race in the Bronx. I mean, what was it about this race that initially interested you? So, Maria, this race is super interesting. The primary happened at the end of June, and it was a Democratic primary, but it was basically a general election because almost everybody in this part of the Bronx is a Democrat. So basically, whoever wins this primary would almost definitely get this seat in November. And it was a super crowded race. There were 12 candidates. And with one notable exception that I'll talk about in a second, all of these candidates consider themselves to be progressive. But within this progressive umbrella, there are these divisions that we've seen, you know, on the national level in democratic politics. So, you know, at this moment, the House is the one piece of the federal government that the Democrats control. But there's this power struggle going on between the more left wing and the more moderate members of Congress. So I thought that this was a really interesting race to see how some of these debates that we're seeing in the Democratic Party nationally would play out in a very Latino district. So the district is very Latino, but I mean, who are the people who are voting in this race? This district is special in a lot of ways. It is the only district in New York that's entirely in the Bronx. So to get more of a sense of the district, I went up there the weekend before the election and just, you know, walked around, recorded some of the sounds of the neighborhood in a socially distanced way. 
So there were a bunch of families in the park. They were barbecuing. They were playing salsa and bachata music. There were Puerto Rican flags all over the place. And the district more broadly, it's been mostly Latino and Black since the 1970s. For a long time, most of those Latinos were Puerto Rican. Now there's also a lot of Dominicans and Mexicans. There are also immigrants from Bangladesh and parts of West Africa. All right, well, let's talk a little bit more about the candidates. So who are they? So I didn't talk to all of them, but I did talk to the guy who ultimately won. I'm Richie Torres, born, bred, and battle-tested in the Bronx. He's just 32 years old. He represents a section of the Bronx that partly overlaps with this congressional district. And that clip is from when I talked to him before the election. So he's kind of a shiny young politician. Even outside the Bronx, he's seen as a rising star. You know, he had this slick campaign video. I grew up in public housing. I'm a son of the Bronx. I was raised by a single mother who had to raise three children on minimum wage. And I lived in conditions of mold and vermin, lead and leaks. And on the city council, he's really focused on improving these conditions in public housing that he knows about firsthand. He's also Afro-Puerto Rican and is known for being the first out LGBTQ person ever elected to any political office in the Bronx. And his campaign also stood out because he was able to raise by far the most money of all of the candidates, about $1.3 million. There were a bunch of other, you know, veteran New York politicians. I'm not going to get into all of them. There was also a political newcomer in this race, a woman named Samelis Lopez. And I think that the community is ready for revolutionary, visionary, working class leadership that is going to put their needs unapologetically first. So as you may have guessed from these statements, Samelis Lopez comes from the left wing of the Democratic Party. And even though she's never been elected to public office, her campaign started getting traction after AOC and then Bernie Sanders endorsed her. She was also part of a slate of candidates in New York City that were supported by the local chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America. And then finally, the guy who was considered to be the front runner for most of the race was unfortunately the one candidate who did not answer my emails or my voicemails, the Reverend Ruben Diaz Sr. Hola. Te habla el reverendo Rubén Díaz. This is a clip of a video I found on his Facebook page. Para las elecciones del martes 23 de junio, tú podrás votar desde tu casa si así lo deseas. Where he's explaining how to get an absentee ballot, you know, because of COVID. So Rubén Díaz Sr. is also on the New York City Council. He also represents an area that overlaps with this congressional district. Before that, he was in the state Senate. And he's super controversial because even though he's a longtime politician in this borough where everybody's a Democrat, he says pretty nice things about President Trump. He's called Mexicans rapists. You know that's not true. This is a clip from an interview Diaz did with a local TV reporter in the run-up to the 2016 election. And here was his response in that interview. He's called... called those, those, some of those that come, right? No, no, he made a generalization. No, he said, Don't tell me you're going to defend him. Uh, no, I'm going to defend him. I want to give him the opportunity to explain himself. Reverend Diaz has said that he likes Donald Trump and identifies with him. And also, I'm going to allow him to use the right of, of freedom of expression that gives the First Amendment of the Constitution of the United States to us, because I'm also have been blasted. 
And it's true that he does get blasted kind of often, because on top of defending Donald Trump, he's known for saying things like this. Ruben Diaz Sr. says he faced rejection from his colleagues the moment he got to the city council last year because, quote, over there, everybody's controlled by the homosexual community. That story was in the news about a year ago, and Reverend Diaz has this much longer history of opposing gay marriage and saying homophobic things. Okay, well, Ruben Diaz Sr. sounds like a kind of unusual Democrat. So why did people think that he'd be the front runner in a race where so many voters are Democrats? So there are a couple things. First, he's been in Bronx politics for a couple of decades at this point. He's part of this old guard of Puerto Rican politicians who've really dominated Latino politics in the Bronx for many years. And he's known for throwing these big parties called abrazos, you know, like hugs. Where there's music and food and powerful local politicians usually make an appearance. So, you know, he's done a lot of people favors over the years. He has a lot of name recognition in the borough. And on top of that, he's a Pentecostal minister, which helps explain his position on gay marriage. And, you know, people say that the Bronx is like the Bible Belt of New York City. There are a lot of evangelical and Pentecostal churches. There are a bunch of older Latinos who are economically liberal, but more socially conservative than maybe the average Democrat. And as more of a practical matter, you know, the Reverend could use his church to promote his campaign. His physical church building was closed for a while because of COVID-19, but he's still been airing services over Facebook and a local radio station. And the weekend before the primary, in one of those sermons, he was reminding people to go vote. So, you know, he had this easy platform to reach his base. I'm thinking about my years of reporting in the Bronx, where there was like entrenched political power structures that, you know, were big. And so I'm wondering, given that reality, how was Richie Torres able to pull ahead? So for Richie Torres, the fact that he was running against Reverend Diaz was kind of personal. When I first ran, Ruben Diaz Sr., even at the time, was a formidable political figure. And so it's because of people like him that I felt a sense of fear when I first ran for public office. And you know that has left scars on me. So that fear that Richie Torres is talking about, does that come into the picture because Richie Torres is gay? Exactly. So there's kind of a poetic dynamic here. You know, there's this young gay candidate who's running against this older candidate who's held rallies against marriage equality. And pretty early on in his campaign, Torres started getting support from big LGBTQ organizations and other national groups. And as the race went on, he really tried to frame the race as being between just two people. Richie supporters started airing attack ads that compared Diaz to Trump. Diaz Sr. supports the dangerous Trump agenda that hurts South Bronx families. Diaz even invited Trump to his church and thanked him for caring for us. But there's a better choice. Democrat Richie Torres, a son of the Bronx. And some of his supporters actually started pushing the other candidates to drop out because there were concerns that having 11 progressive candidates in this race was going to split the progressive vote in a way that would ultimately help the reverend come out on top. I feel like I'm having a little bit of flashbacks to the Democratic presidential primary because 
there were so many more candidates and the more moderate candidates dropped out and endorsed Joe Biden, which was this turning point that really helped Biden to take the lead that Bernie Sanders had. So did these progressive candidates end up uniting around Richie Torres? They did not. None of the candidates I talked to seemed to be even considering it. And for Samelis Lopez, the Democratic Socialist candidate, it was because she didn't consider Richie Torres to be progressive enough. Specifically, she was really critical of how he'd raised his campaign money. Some of that money came from real estate developers who were interested in building in the Bronx at a time when people are worried that gentrification could push the Black and Latino families who've lived in this borough for decades out of their homes. And I think that the committee has a deep understanding that if you're a Democrat taking like dirty funding. This is Samelis Lopez again. I mean, that's just as bad as somebody who's anti-LGBTQIA because you're selling us out. I think if your sense of integrity is so fragile that it would crumble under the influence of a political contribution, then you have no business serving an elected office or assuming any position of consequence. Torres said that his track record on the city council shows that he's super committed to going after shady landlords and funding affordable housing. And, you know, I think these criticisms frustrated him a little bit. He talked about how they echo these national divides in the Democratic Party. If you see no difference between Ruben Diaz Sr. and myself, if you see no difference between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, if you see no difference between Democrats and Republicans, then you have no business representing the South Bronx because you have a dangerously warped view of the world. Coming up on Latino USA, we recap a historic election night. It would be the honor of my life to represent this borough. It's my home. And we talk with Richie Torres about what being a progressive means to him. Stay with us. No te vayas. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who specialize in issues such as isolation, depression, stress, anxiety, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment when you need professional help. Get help at your own time and your own pace. Schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. Visit BetterHelp.com Latino to learn more and get 10% off your first month. What do you do when you have too many pickles in Alaska and not enough pancake syrup in New Jersey? On the next episode of Planet Money's Summer School, we send supply and demand to the rescue. It's the economics education you always wanted but never got around to. Every Wednesday, listen now to Planet Money from NPR. We're back. And before the break, we were talking with Latino USA producer Alisa Escarce about the race for the 15th congressional district in the Bronx. And we're going to jump back to that conversation now. 
All right, Alisa. Well, primary day in New York was a little crazy. Hundreds of thousands of New Yorkers had requested absentee ballots to be mailed in. So what about the primary in this Bronx district? How did it go? So between people who voted in person on primary day and people who'd voted early, there were around 40,000 votes in this congressional race. A bunch of absentee ballots also got sent out in this district. We still don't know exactly when those are going to be counted. So we might not be able to call the election officially for a little while. But, you know, by late on the night of the primary, Richie Torres had a significant lead in the polls. Here he is talking to a local TV reporter. So I'm not prepared to declare victory until every vote is counted. But even if I win the election, it's governing that matters. It's delivering results for the everyday people of the South Bronx. It would be the honor of my life to represent this borough. It's my home. So that's him choking up? Yeah, it was really emotional. You know, he told me later that it was this really overwhelming moment. And the next morning, I looked at the results, and he was in the lead with about 30% of the vote. Ruben Diaz Sr. was in third place. He had less than 15% of the vote. And Samelis Lopez was in fourth. And at this point, Richie Torres' campaign still hasn't declared him the winner. But they told me they're pretty confident that he has an insurmountable lead. And after all of these concerns about Ruben Diaz Sr. and splitting the progressive vote, how exactly did Richie Torres end up so far ahead? So about a week after the primary, I called him to check in about the race. It looks like you're going to D.C. How does it feel? Well, well, first, I feel exhausted. And he told me he thought it was his background and his track record that really pulled him into the lead. Voters are hungering for a new generation of leadership. And I represent an infusion of new blood. And second, you know, voters could care less about my sexuality. What matters to them is my background as a housing organizer, is my background and my record as an advocate for tenants in the New York City Council. There were also some tactical things that helped him get ahead, like the fact that he had raised so much money. It meant that he could air lots and lots of TV ads at a time when a lot of people are just sitting at home because of COVID. And then after the primary, I got to take a look at these maps that political scientists from the City University of New York put together that show this really interesting pattern. So Richie won overwhelmingly in the area that's in his current city council district, which is really common in New York elections that candidates who run in an area, you know, where people already know them have a big advantage. But the really interesting thing is that Ruben Diaz's district went overwhelmingly for Richie Torres. And, you know, that probably means that Diaz Sr. either didn't have as much support as people thought before the election or that his supporters didn't come out to vote this time as much as other people did. But it also does seem like this narrative that Diaz was similar to Trump after Trump has spent years attacking immigrants and also at a time when Trump's approval ratings are just really low in general that all of that also worked against Diaz. All right. So if you think that, you know, Bronx politics, you know, is democratic politics, I'm wondering about, you know, like thinking about this particular district, so Latino, and you've got a guy like Richie Torres who considers himself so progressive, but he was running against a Bernie Sanders endorsed candidate who criticized him Uh, pretty starkly for taking real estate money. So when you step back, what kind of a Democrat do you think that Richie Torres from the Bronx is going to be? You know, it's a great question. Honestly, right after the election, I still wasn't sure. And it was the thing that I was most curious about. 
Because, you know, there were all these articles that came out right after the primary that talked about this wave of left-wing candidates who have huge leads over other candidates who are really closely associated with the Democratic establishment. So there was Jamal Bowman, also in the Bronx. We celebrate this movement, a movement designed to push back against a system that's literally killing us. There was Mondaire Jones. And so I think you're going to see increasingly members of the House Democratic Caucus who had been holding out on any number of issues, moved to the left. I think you'll see and have already seen uh, Vice President Biden move to the left. Both of those candidates were endorsed by Bernie Sanders and AOC. And then Richie Torres was also included on those lists of insurgent progressive candidates, even though Bernie and AOC endorsed his opponent. So, you know, I looked back a little bit further into his history, and it's still hard to tell what camp he's in. He actually endorsed Bernie during the 2016 primaries on the city council. He was on the Progressive Caucus for a while, then he left, then he came back. So I was really curious to find out what he would say about this. So I'm curious at this point how you see yourself fitting in with the Democratic Party. I see myself as a progressive but independent progressive. And since I won decisively, I'm beholden to no power structure, uh, whether it is the democratic socialist industrial complex or the democratic establishment. Wait, did, did he just say the democratic socialist industrial complex? <laughs> I had not heard that before. I don't know if that's actually a thing. Um, But, you know, when he said that, I asked him again, like, why? If you're progressive, like, why not align yourself with one of these power structures? Why go it alone in the way that you did? Um, I find that those organizations are unrepresentative of the district that I represent, right? The DSA is overwhelmingly white. My district is overwhelmingly Latino and African-American. It's important for me to represent the interests and values and lived experiences of the people of the South Bronx. You know, there were always questions about whether the DSA strategy would work in this district, partly because when AOC first won in 2018, she did best in the areas of Queens that are already more gentrified. When it comes to specific policies, Richie disagrees with the DSA on some issues, like charter schools, for example. On the other hand, he says he strongly supports Bernie Sanders and AOC's signature policy issues. He's totally on board with the Green New Deal. And then as far as Medicare for All, do I think Medicare for All is the only path to universal health care? No, but it's a sensible path. All right. So the takeaway might be that he has progressive goals, but that Richie Torres is willing to compromise on things when there are people around him who have different opinions, right? Yeah, I think that's right. I'm a pragmatist. I never allow progressive purity to be the enemy of progress. All right, well, that was a lot of political drama going on in the Bronx. At this point, what's next for Richie Torres and his campaign? So, as he said, he's waiting for all the absentee ballots to come in to officially declare victory. But assuming nothing really unexpected happens, he'll have a couple opponents in the general election in the fall. There's one Republican and a couple of third-party candidates. But I think it's fair to assume that he's heading to Washington next year. And he told me that he's planning on joining the Congressional Progressive Caucus and fighting with them for Medicare for All and the Green New Deal. But I don't think he fits neatly into either of these two camps inside the Democratic Party. And I think he's going to be somebody to watch. Thank you, Alisa, for all of your reporting on this story. 
This episode was produced by Alisa Escarce and edited by Luis Treyes and Sofia Palizaca. The Latino USA team includes Miguel Macias, Janice Yamoka, Julieta Martinelli, Ginny Montalvo, and Alejandra Salazar, with help from Raúl Pérez. Our engineers are Stephanie LeBeau and Julia Caruso. Additional engineering this week by Leah Shaw. Our director of programming and operations is Natalia Fidelholtz. Our digital editor is Amanda Alcantara. Our New York Women's Foundation Ignite Fellow is Julia Rocha. Our interns are Sofia Sanchez and Marie Mendoza. Our theme music was composed by Zenia Rubinos. If you like the music you heard on this episode, stop by latinousa.org and check out our weekly Spotify playlist. I'm your host and executive producer, Maria Hinojosa. Join us again on our next episode. And in the meantime, look for us on all of your social media and I'll see you there. Hasta la próxima. Ciao. Latino USA is made possible in part by Carnegie Corporation, promoting the advancement and diffusion of knowledge and understanding. New York Women's Foundation. The New York Women's Foundation, funding women leaders that build solutions in their communities and celebrating 30 years of radical generosity. And the Wincote Foundation. I'm Maria Hinojosa. Next time on Latino USA, a conversation among young activists about what good allyship looks like today in the fight against anti-Blackness and police brutality. Allyship shouldn't be performative. It shouldn't be for other people. Like, as long as we know that you are our ally and that you are supporting us, that's all we need. That's next time on Latino USA.